My development director used to tell me that money equals programs. And of course, that's true. We'd often remind board members of this as we encouraged them to invite folks to know and do more for our organizations. But what are we doing in our race to fuel the work we do? Are we giving donors too much power? Is it possible that our fundraising efforts and our overall strategy is actually perpetuating the very inequity that the sector seeks to address? Why don't we sit with that for a second? Donor-centric fundraising. You've heard the phrase. I Googled it and I found this firm online and the tagline said, donor-centered fundraising fulfills donors' essential requirements. Yikes. It's more than possible that our sector has taken this idea to a problematic place. Now, here's a metaphor to describe what's happening. The quote is courtesy of one of my guests today who has an affinity for unicorns and cute animals of all sorts. Think of donor-centric fundraising like this. You helped us buy bread to feed these ducks. Because of you, 50 ducks did not go hungry. You are a hero. But what if we could figure out a fundraising model in which we get donors to understand that they too are ducks and their lives and happiness are all tied together with the other ducks and to the pond they share? I get this. My guests today have been talking about a new model for a while now. They're launching a movement away from donor-centric fundraising and towards community-centric fundraising. I bet some of you are relieved, some of you are skeptical, and some of you are anxious. Today, I'll try to represent all of these voices as we dig into some tough conversations and some bold thinking. It's the opportunity to offer listeners the opportunity to hear from people who see profound flaws in our sector and are generating solutions that makes me feel mighty lucky indeed to have this platform. And I hope you agree. Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary. In my work, I offer counsel and advice to CEOs and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a keynote speaker an author of a best-selling book with a very novel name, Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership, and I'm a columnist for the Chronicle of Philanthropy. I'm also the co-founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, an online membership site where we help small nonprofits thrive. But most of all, I consider myself a compassionate truth teller and a champion for board and staff leaders. In my podcast, I dig deep into the issues faced by nonprofit leaders, you can always count on getting my personal point of view, and you can count on experts who will share their expertise in fields ranging from fundraising to leadership transitions, to team building, to board management, to organizational strategy, to self-care. The list goes on. So welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Let's get started. We have two guests today. Our first guest is Michelle Shireen Murray. She's a strategic advisor, fundraising coach, and at her consultancy, Freedom Conspiracy, which you can find at freedom-conspiracy.com. Her clients in, include Edgar Villanueva and the De Decolonizing Wealth Project, Designing Justice and Designing Spaces, Columbia Legal Services, New Life Foundation, the Russell Family Foundation, among others. Michelle practices community-centric fundraising principles and helps clients align their practices with their values, and in so doing, multiplies their audiences and fundings, funding by two to five times. She's the co-chair of the Council for Community-Centric Fundraising and the host of The Ethical Rainmaker, a new podcast coming July 29th. Michelle believes there is deep power and personal healing in generating resources from a values-aligned space. Michelle, I'm delighted you're here. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. My other guest is a guy named Vu Lei. He's a writer, a speaker, a vegan, a Pisces, and was the executive director of Rainier Valley Corps a nonprofit in Seattle that promotes social justice by developing leaders of color, strengthening organizations led by communities of color, and fostering collaboration between diverse communities. Known for his non-BS approach, irreverent sense of humor, and love of unicorns, Vu has been featured in dozens, if not hundreds, of his own blog posts at nonprofitaf.com. 
He's a keynoter. He does panels, other speaking gigs, and he talks on a bunch of different subjects, funding dynamics, cultural competency, self-care, and what Game of Thrones can teach us about the nonprofit field. He stepped down from his role as executive director in December of 2019, said he was burned out, wanted to spend more time with his family, and he had some other interests he wanted to pursue. And today we get to talk about some of those very things. Vu, my friend, it's good to see you again. Thank you, Joan. It's good to be back. So, Vu, I'd like to start with you. You've been leading the charge on this for a long time, and honestly, I'm really excited to see that in the post-executive director world, you've been able to really deep dive into issues that actually really matter so much to you and to the sector you care so much about. Now, your argument goes back to about 2017, that the pervasiveness of the donor-centric fundraising model in our sector may be perpetuating the inequity we seek to address. I'd love, you, I'd love for you to just start by telling us about that. How do you see it and why is it the issue that you're focusing on now? Thanks, Joan. This actually started in 2015 when I wrote a blog post called Winter is Coming and the Donor-Centered Fundraising Model Needs to evolve. This was back when Game of Thrones was good, you know? Mm-hmm. So now, <laughs> and uh, it, it just made me realize as, as I was talking to all of these leaders, especially leaders of color in the sector, is that the way that we've been doing fundraising and centering donors in many ways is causing a lot of harm. And we got to figure out how to do this. And so that's kind of, I, it's taken a while, but I'm really glad to see that this movement is, is starting to to move forward. And um, why am I focusing on this? I think this is really critical because fundraisers have so much influence on our sector and donors have so much influence on all the issues that we care about. And if we don't address these issues, uh, then I think that it's, it's, it's not good. So um, give me some examples um, in the, the, the post you read, you you actually redid your post and posted it again in like June of this year on this very topic. Some of the ways in which the donor centric model is um, is presenting real challenges for the sector. Can you offer some examples of that? Yeah, I think a huge issue is that we center when we center donors who oftentimes are, are white. It creates the savior complex, right? When donors think that well, they are the hero again. And then it prevents them from, from examining more uh, issues such as where their family's wealth came from, or maybe they should be paying more taxes, or maybe the wealth is built on like a, a system of slavery and colonization, and that it's not just about them giving some money back, but really undoing some of the damage and, and, the, and the legacies that, that may have been caused by their family, right? So... Um, that's, that's an example of like the difficult conversation we need to have with donors. Another thing is that it perpetuates this nonprofit hunger games where all of us are just trying to fight to get as much funding for our own organizations as possible. But the reality is that our organizations are in this ecosystem when all the issues are interrelated. We can't keep operating as if we are individual siloed missions when everything is interrelated. So... You've talked about it, and and Michelle, I promise I'll get you in here in a second. Um, You've talked about it as kind of a movement, right? A movement away from donor-centric fundraising into community-centric fundraising. So define it as a movement for me, Vu. It's a movement from some place of X to some place of Y. What are you looking to move from, and what are you looking to move towards? We're hoping to move it away from this sort of being centered on donors' feelings and making them feel good about themselves towards getting them to really examine the injustice that they may be helping to perpetuate. In some ways, it's kind of like um, like I was doing gardening with my four-year-old, right? And he was so happy because he planted a seedling in the garden. He's like, look, Daddy, I planted this little seedling. And I'm like, oh, I'm so proud of you. This is amazing. And then I looked back and he had trampled over like 12 seedlings that I had planted previously that were growing. <laughs> right? So, but our, our donor center motto is like, keep telling uh, someone, look, you're amazing. Look, look at what you planted. And now it has to be, okay, look, that's great that you planted one seedling, but look at like the path of destruction you, you may have left 
that you did not even realize. And a lot of the path of destruction is, you know, like thinking about wealth, where is wealth? And a lot of it's, again, from colonization, slavery, unfair tax policies, et cetera. Interesting. So, Michelle, what uh, I want to get you in here. Um, do you want to add how you think this movement best be defined? Yeah, thank you. You know, the foundation of most wealth and foundations themselves were built off the backs of enslaved people, of indigenous people, off of murdered people and communities and stolen lands. So extractive practices, which is something that we don't talk about enough. I met a person whose family invented a chemical that was used to harm people, a chemical that causes deformities still to this day. And this person wants to give 75% of their wealth to their children and does feel some responsibility to community and wants to give the other 25% to local environmental causes. But what about what the community needs in this instance? That is unexamined wealth. That money is literally blood money. And all of it needs to be given back to communities that were hurt by it. This chemical that was created that's still causing problems, that needs to go, that money needs to go to the communities in which it hurt. And that's what reparations can look like. So that's an example of unexamined wealth. Examined wealth, there's a foundation in Minnesota that has examined their wealth and they know that the majority of their funds came from building railroads. And in the building of those railroads, they used, uh, They stole land. They murdered indigenous people to steal the land. They used Chinese slave labor. And after examining that history, they've now dedicated more than 60% of their funding every year to indigenous communities. So I think that the movement can also be defined as going from unexamined to examined, both because that's how we make reparations from harm done in the past, and also because it's what's necessary to move forward. Um, good. That's actually really helpful. So, um, so I think I have a pretty good picture of what we don't want, right? We don't want the, um, the savior to come in, save the day. Um, right. We want them to be part of the solution, but in a, in a, in a richer, deeper kind of way, it seems to me. We want, and, and we want many different kinds of people to feel like they are part of solving the inequities in our sector. So, so talk to me about, um, how are you defining community-centric fundraising? I mean, clearly to advance our missions, and I'm, and I'm, you know, throughout the course of this episode, I am imagining that at varying points, people's heads are exploding, right? And they're saying, oh my God, I have to examine the wealth of the donor that I hope to God is going to give me a thousand bucks remotely (laughs) through a virtual cup of coffee. Like, oh my goodness. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I, I am, I, I am empathetic to the folks who are listening. So help understand what community centric fundraising is and how it's different because we, we clearly still have to rely on people who have wealth. Boo, you want to go back to tell, tell us, let's talk more about ducks. It's always good when we talk about ducks. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I think this is what's really exciting about the movement is that we get to define these things. We gotta, we get to, to try new things, maybe fail at some stuff. But I think the, we have to acknowledge that what we have been doing in, in many ways has been like trampling on the seedlings that, <laughs> and so, or getting people to believe that they are not part of the pond, that they right. are just like, when you throw bread at ducks, you're saying, I am not a duck. And that I am just doing something nice for these ducks, these the that that live over there. And I think that in many ways we, we've been training donors to think of this like way. They we train people to otherize the people that we serve into this charity and pity mindset. And it creates this poverty tourism that is very damaging to our communities, the communities that we're trying to help. And so I think what's really exciting about the movement is really getting people to understand deeply um, that this is that they are connected to everyone out there, right? And that they belong to this community. And an example is I've been working on uh, education and equity. And there are schools in Seattle that can raise hundreds of thousands of dollars in one night, whereas some schools have like 95% low-income kids and they can raise, I don't know, $1,000 after spending six months collecting books or clothing or whatever. And sometimes we go to these more well-off schools and, and say, hey, why don't you give money? Why don't you just like give 10% of the money you collect and help these other kids and these other schools. And the donors go, well, why would we do that? 
Mm-hmm. You know, why, why would we help these? Oh, my kids don't go to these schools. Why would I help them? But so I think, and, and we've been reinforcing that sort of message, message, which is like, well, yeah, that makes sense. Why would we do something that donors don't care about? But I think moving forward, we have to get them to care about these things. I want to tell these donors and these parents, you know, your kids may not go to these schools, but your kids are going to grow up and they're going to marry other people's kids. So, so you have to invest in other people's kids as well, because you live in the same community. And if you want your kids to be well off, then you have to invest in other people's kids. So kind of getting them to really think in that sort of way, this sort of community minded way, I think will be good for everyone. Well, and it also requires such a change in mindset for the person who runs the, uh, the independent school of with wealth, right? Those, those, Mm -hmm. those donors, you're telling me that as the head of school, you're telling me that the $10,000 donor, you, you want them to give $5,000 to some other school? What? <laughs> right. Yes. That's yeah, the challenge are. that we have. Yeah, it is the we challenge. We are. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, Vu, talk about um, the origin story of this movement. I mean, I, you know, you've been writing about it, but now it's, you know, you're about to launch um sort of an initiative, for lack of a better word, at communitycentricfundraising.org um, in mid-July. Tell us, uh, tell us about the origin story of this thing actually getting some traction and, and moving. Yeah, like I said, I wrote about this five years ago. And, but I do think that I get a lot, a lot more credit than I deserve. Right? A lot of these ideas have been aggregated from lots of people of color, especially women of color and other and white allies who've been very uncomfortable with the way that we've been doing fundraising in this sector. And it does take a while for these ideas to kind of to bubble up. And then two years ago, uh, when I kind of brought this back up again, because it's been sort of fomenting in the, in the background, this sort of dissatisfaction and dissonance with the way that we've been doing fundraising. And I wrote um, how donor centrism has been perpetuating inequity which riled up a lot of people. And a lot of people were very mad at me for saying this. You, you riled uh, up people? I, I, don't, I, don't, <laughs> I know. It's, I, 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 it's I don't, surprising. Who are you and what did you do with Vu? <laughs> um, but then fundraisers, especially those of color and a few, and a, and a lot of white allies were like, this is, you're right. We can't keep doing this. Let's get together. So there was about 90 fundraisers of color. We got together. And everyone was like, yes, this is, we need to, we need to do something. We need to do something differently. Um, and so then um, <clears throat> from there, you, um, uh, Michelle, you get, you all started to, to say, okay, let's collect some data. What, what can we learn about what, what is it we know? What we know in our hearts, what we know, but how can we, um, how can we do this a little bit more empirically? And I, I tell, tell us about the survey. Yeah. So, um, there were two pieces, the two main ways in which we collected information. One was that we held a gathering of 90 fundraisers of color in the Seattle area and held like a half day qualitative information gathering from these groups to understand what folks were struggling with and what we all had in common. And then our group, uh, Community Centric Fundraising, we also put out a survey where 2,500 people from across the nation answered. And what we learned is actually going to be um, part of a virtual event that we're going to be holding next month or in, in July 2020 uh, about the full data set. But what we ultimately learned is that most people most people who were surveyed are really uncomfortable with the way fundraising is being done and actually believe that the way that fundraising is being done is damaging our missions and our communities. So from that, we also learned that people felt like they were alone and that they weren't being heard, that there was no community in which to talk about this work. So we learned that there's been a pent up demand from fundraisers, from nonprofit executive directors, especially those of color who are feeling isolated and trying to figure it out on their own. And that there's been nobody to share and bounce ideas off of. AFP chapters, most of them aren't ready to have d- difficult conversations or discuss seemingly political issues. And so we really realized that there's, there, there was a space that was missing for folks. So how does this thing work? What, what, what is it? What, 
what do I, so if I go to communitycentricfundraising.org, like what happens there? What's the, what are the resources, the tools? Um, because, you, you, you know, you're, you're definitely climbing a pretty steep mountain in terms of the sort of entrenched model that has existed in this sector for a really long time. That's right. That's true. Well, what we learned from listening to our community is that we needed a community of support. So communitycentricfundraising.org is starting as a platform, as a web platform that's a community of support, but also a platform to generate knowledge and wisdom that provides a counter-narrative to the framework, philosophy, and practices of fundraising, a steep hill, like you said. But there's so little space for those of us that don't come from the dominant culture to to challenge these conventions. And we're also hoping to provide affirmation that the discomfort that people have been having with the way that things are done in our sector is totally valid. We haven't really had the language permission or community to talk about this. We also hope that it will act as a lab we are creating a space of sharing that will include case studies and stories about what folks are trying, what's working, what's failing, so that we can learn from each other and ultimately connect folks who are pushing boundaries. We hope that folks will be able to meet each other on this platform and also eventually post-COVID meet in person (laughs) and create chapters across the country so that we're also developing solutions that fit locally. Um, uh, I believe there's a podcast in your future too, isn't there, Michelle? That's right. That's right. Yes, I'll be the host and your fellow traveler on The Ethical Rainmaker, a new podcast that's going to talk with today's visionaries, reformers, reimaginers of the third sector. So we're going to hear about what amazing community-centered things are happening in our sector, what difficult things we should be considering. In the first few episodes, you'll hear about giving raises during a recession with Ananda Valenzuela of RVC and an episode with a kink instructor, LT, about consent and how we can build consensual relationships between nonprofits and funders. The Ethical Rainmaker is going to be a regular feature on our site starting on July 29th, And we'll be talking about putting community first where it belongs. If folks who are listening in this audience and your audience have something to contribute to the conversation, the community-centric fundraising platform is a shared benefit approach. So we are looking for content creators and we will be paying our content creators to share their work. So here's a question for you, Vu. Let's say we fast forward and it's 12 months from now. Okay. And um, maybe your children are actually back in school and you've stopped yelling at them and putting them in time out. Um, we can hope, yeah. <laughs> how, um, how will you know that you've, uh, that, that you've been successful, that you've made an impact? What, what will think, yeah, what will it look like a year from now? You say, wow, we've had an excellent first year in, in doing this work. What, what will that look like for you? Can you give me a couple examples? Yeah, I, I think for the hub itself, communitycentricfundraising.org, it would be great if we can actually get lots and lots of content generated by people who, who just felt, wow, I finally have a space where I can share my thoughts about how uh, things need to change and evolve, right? We have examples of this all the time in the sector. Uh, I think Michelle was talking about a, a development director who asked uh, their ED, to ask the donors when they're visiting these low-income kids to not dress up in their suits because, you know, the kids are being intimidated. But the ED being trained to be donor-centric is like, no, this is what our donors want. They want to wear their suits in the middle of the day and they, we can't ask them to dress casually for our kids. And I think, no, like this is, we have to challenge that. If we're going to center our communities and we have to do what's best for our communities, not what's always best for our donors, Right. And I know some people are like, well, what's best for our donors is what's best for our community. And I would challenge that. No, oftentimes our donors are not as knowledgeable. They are not people with the lived experience. They are not in proximity to the people who are most affected by injustice. And we as fundraisers have the responsibility to protect our clients and our communities. But we don't have the space to actually say this in a way that people it would actually start changing people's practices. So I would love for people to be able to use communitycentricfundraising.org as a way to actually write about these experiences, maybe even anonymously, right? Because of power dynamics. So the website itself, I, and I, I would love to see more chapters of people exploring. And maybe they say, 
hey, we tried something and it didn't work. And here's what we learned uh, about that. And, but I'm already starting to see some of this already. Uh, we have uh, an, an organization over here in Seattle that mailed out a copy of Ichiomo Luo's book, So You Want to Talk About Race, to their major donors. They sent their major donors a copy of this book. And of course, the donors like, what the hell? Some of them were like, why did you do this? Why are you inviting me to this, this book club? Right? But other donors were like, this is amazing. Um, uh, I, I, you invited I, us. Yeah, I actually think too, um, in the days of being remote and virtual, there's such opportunity for these kind of salon discussions where you can, where you can, ha- right, have these conversations in smaller groups where people aren't actually paying more attention to whether their margarita has sufficient salt on it, mm-hmm. right, and more, <laughs> right. and more attention to sort of the, the, the deep roots of the issue that a particular organization is actually trying to grapple with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're looking forward to that and just having a space where people can share those experiences and what they learn is exciting. So Michelle, one of the things I'm hearing here is that developing, so, and, and, and I think, I mean, I, you know, I think conceptually most fundraisers would say, yes, I, I want to have a relationship with donors and that if I do, I'm much more likely to have them stay connected to the organization. But, mm-hmm. um, but time and fill in the blank and fill in the blank and fill in the blank, uh, thwarts that. And I end up being a transactional fundraiser where I'm trying to sort of go across the goal line, right? So, right. so you're, so I, I think conceptually people are on the same page about developing more of a partnership. Um, uh, and I'm hearing you say that in so doing, you have, you, you have an opportunity to encourage donors to learn, to think more deeply about the issues that your clients face. And I think that makes sense. But um, then what? Like, so I give money to causes I care about. Am I, as a result of this kind of model, am I a smarter philanthropist? Will I actually give you more? Like, what will I do differently because of how you, about, as a result of this model? That's a great question, Joan. Thank you. I, I often think about these things in constellations. And I think that you ultimately are a philanthropist who knows where you're located in a constellation, both within whatever issue area you're interested in and understanding the dynamics of how um, different organizations in the community play together, um, but also your role as a, as a philanthropist. So you're a donor who's paying attention and who knows that where they put their money, there is some accountability to community. I think, you know, there's this lovely idea that I've heard talked about where a donor should really get to know the organization and come and ask to shadow for a day and, you know, really spend time. And I think that's a lovely concept, but what that means in reality for nonprofit organizations is then they have to entertain a donor again. And you're usually taking away from someone's workflow if you're a donor uh, who just wants to drop in and, you know, shadow somebody for a day. So I don't really agree with that method. But I think instead, if you want to make a difference in your community, a true difference in your community as a donor, you should, you should be able to know and understand through some of the education you're talking about that top-down decisions don't work as solutions for our community. Instead, what really works are decisions and solutions that are made by the community. So as a donor, you can ask, who is calling the shots? Um, how is a nonprofit accountable to the community they serve? Who are they accountable to? Who are they responsible to? Are they in right relationship with their stakeholders? And honestly, our nonprofits should be able to answer these questions and be affirmed by the community that surrounds them. I mean, I think community-driven social change can look like a lot of things. It can look like the Black Lives Matter movement, which is a movement of many organizations and groups. And not all of them are 501c3s, but we can see the power of that community to lift and drive change. So I think, you know, as donors, we have a role to educate ourselves and to ask the right questions about accountability. And then as development professionals, I think we need to understand that we actually have very powerful roles to play in the center of all of these stakeholders. And the way, and we're usually the most charming person at our organization too, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. development professionals have so much leverage and so much influence in how people both within and without their organization are thinking about and talking about 
um, everything related to the mission as well as fundraising. So um, I think we as development professionals also should be paying attention here. And uh, otherwise, we're letting down the communities we're trying to serve. I can't really let go of the whole duck thing. And I'm thinking, <laughs> no, 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 stay with me. I'm thinking about that pond, right? Yeah. And so, right, you're describing a situation where I give money to Organization X and you've invited me to come, you know, help me bring the work to life by bringing me in and you're doing some kind of sh- show and tell. And and by the way, that stuff can be very enriching for donors. Yes, However, However, I think in the pond model, I think what you're talking about is what about a Zoom with, because that's the only way we communicate in these times, right? Mm-hmm. What about a Zoom with t- 10 different organizations that are all grappling with the same issue or that have component parts of the root cause of the issue that, that I'm funding through my gift to Organization X so that I am enriched by sort of the sector or the arena in which my organ the organization I fund lives. And and this is why I actually I, I believe the word competition should be removed from the nonprofit vocabulary because I actually think that if you introduce me to other organizations that are are approaching the issue from different angles, I believe the pie gets bigger. It doesn't get smaller. I mean, and, and that, but that's what you're talking about in terms of the pond. And the one thing I, if I, I'm going to take out my soapbox here. You can't see it, but I have it here. And, mm-hmm. and my, when I'm standing on it, my soapbox says, we don't even do this with board members. That's right. Right. Like you can't go, you know, how, how often I work with clients to say, when's the last time you did something at a board meeting that enriched your board members about the actual landscape of the, in which your work gets done. And, right. And, and we don't even do it with board members. And so, um, uh, you know, it's to, to, in, uh, I'll tell you a story that I was talking with a client and saying, well, okay, so if I'm going to, if I'm an ambassador for an LGBTQ organization and someone says, Let's say Trump gets reelected. Are we at risk of losing marriage equality? And if the answer, if my answer to that is I don't know, then first of all, I'm a lousy ambassador. It says something really lousy about this organization. And the, and the organization has sort of dropped the ball in helping me understand the landscape in which the work that this organization exists. And so, um, and I do think that uh, many, many, many philanthropists really want to understand, and we're just not giving them ample opportunities because of our own, um, mm-hmm. you know, because of our own stuff about, uh, you know, I have to, uh, you you know, my, my budget has to grow. My, that's my donor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree, Joan. I do feel like we are, we have been underestimating our donors quite a lot. Yeah, I think and that's we've been absolutely very, right. We've been very protective, you know, and we say things like, well, we got to treat donors. We don't, we don't want to treat them like ATM machines. We want to build a relationship with them. But the reality is I feel like we've been infantilizing our donors quite a lot. Because we are afraid of their their feelings being too fragile to to handle the truth, and that if we tell them the truth, they would they would they would pack up and take their money elsewhere. But I think we need to stop underestimating our donors. If we're going to treat them as actual partners, then it means having these difficult conversations with them, bring them into these conversations, and maybe some of them might not like it. Uh, actually, I was presenting about community centric fundraising to a board once. And one of the board members, a white dude, was very defensive. You know, he was like, uh, how, how do I know this is going to work? Um, that this donor-centric thing where you're asking people to examine their wealth and stuff is going to work. And I'm, I'm offended. I think <laughs> he was offended by that. And later I would find out that he, uh, I, I, I told him, just because something works doesn't mean that it's the ethical thing to do either. Anyway, he was very offended. And at the end of that meeting, I would learn I, that he left the board and took his major gift. So yes, there are people who are very fragile and who cannot handle these conversations. But I think the vast majority of people are, are now very interested in being involved because that's the authentic relationship building 
you know, I, I sometimes think I was talking to Michelle about this. That I, I kind of feel like donor centered fundraising is kind of like, I don't know. I'm sure I'll get into trouble by saying this, but it's like saying husband centric marriages. It's like, I'm a husband. I would love it if my, my partner writes me a handwritten thank you note, you know, every time I do the dishes, right? It's like, thanks to you, our family is stronger. You did the dishes. You're the hero. I appreciate you so much, right? And every time I take care of the kids, I'm like, thanks to you for being an amazing parent. Because of you, our family is strong. I'm like, I would love that. If I get a thank you note every single time I did something, and you know, and also my partner is just a voice telling me stuff that I don't want to hear, I'm sure I would be happier. But is that the kind of marriage that 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 lasts, right? right. I should have to do the dishes because that's my responsibility to do it, whether I get thanked or not sometimes. Um, but it's the same, but, but, right. Okay, so I'm... I'm uh, no thank you notes for doing the dishes, but we have actually managed mm-hmm. to make donors heroes, right? We have trained them to expect a thank you note for doing the dishes. And also because so because they feel heroic, because we have trained them to be to feel that way, what do we do to shift their mindset? I mean, one of the principles of community-centric fundraising, Michelle, is that the community is best served if we see ourselves as part of a larger ecosystem working collectively to build a just society. But mm-hmm. haven't we trained our donors to believe that that's exactly what they're doing by writing a $1,000 check or a $5,000 check? Like, we're going to have, there's, there's a lot of mindset shifting that's going to have to happen here. Mm-hmm. And the donors, are, the donors are a part of that. That's right. Yeah, it, it's true. There's a lot of mindset shifting that needs to happen. But I think this is the perfect moment for it. You know, the fact that, you know, we're speaking um, at the end of June, 2020, and we're in the middle of a double pandemic and we are forced to be, you know, sheltering in place. And, you know, those of us with regular access to media and who care about social justice are really starting to tune in. Um, And I think many of us are questioning the ways in which we are complicit with, higher structures of anti-blackness and white supremacy, right? And so we're having to already question a lot about the way that things are done. This is almost the perfect moment to also be questioning how those elements are showing up. For example, um, one of the things that I've really been examining in myself is is this, um, actually this piece that was written by Tima Okun and Kenneth Jones called the characteristics of white supremacy culture. And it's really a helpful document talking about just some of the, we, we have many choices that we can make about what we're, what values and characteristics and culture, cultural things we're upholding. But when we look at how we're treating donors, we can actually look directly at a document like the one I just mentioned and almost see the ways in which we're complicit in holding these systems together. So we can actually connect it to the moments that are happening now um, and the protests that are happening in the streets around the murder of George Floyd. We can actually directly link some of the, like all of the characteristics that allowed that to happen also to how we are allowing philanthropy to happen in ways that are unhealthy, uh, making this a great moment to approach it. Um, So we are um, chatting about donor-centric fundraising and a movement afoot to sort of shift the mindset and the paradigm to a community-centric fundraising model. And we're talking with Michelle Shireen Murie, who's a strategic advisor, fundraising coach, um, a consulting firm called Freedom Conspiracy. And she is the co-chair of the Council for Community-Centric Fundraising and a host of its affiliated podcast, The Ethical Rainmaker, which is a new podcast coming on July 29th. And we're also talking to Voulet. Many of you know him as the uh, one of the premier nonprofit bloggers. Um, he is, uh, as until December, the executive director of Rainier Valley Corps, a nonprofit in Seattle that promotes social justice by developing leaders of color, strengthening organizations led by communities of color and fostering collaboration among diverse communities. We wondered what it was he was going to do after he left Rainier Valley Corps, and um, we wonder no more. 
Um, <laughs> so we have a couple of a couple of questions to sort of round out this conversation. And um, uh, as you know, I um, I have a uh, membership site for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits, and um, many of these uh, several thousand people are big fans of Vu's blog and. Um, I posted this recent blog in the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, and it generated a couple questions, and I thought it might be useful to uh, bring some of them to life. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to uh, toss a couple your way, um, uh, both to make my members happy because I've gotten their questions answered, but also because I have generally found if one person has a question, there's probably about 100 people that have the same one. Uh, the first one I had was um, from Andrea Pauls Buckman. And um, she kind of is digging the whole concept of this uh, and understands that it's a more sustainable model. But how do you go from one to the other without losing short-term support? Right. It's really take issue that she says it's hard to take something away from donors to whom we have displayed certain kinds of behaviors for a really long time. So the Andrea is saying, I, I want to go there, but how does it impact me in the short term? Anyone want to who wants to take that one? I think either of us say, can. Yeah, I, I would say, again, that we have been underestimating our donors and we have a lot of fear about what donors want when we, maybe we should just ask them. But what I've discovered in working in, in this field for a while is that generosity begets generosity, right? And if we can just get people to be open and honest and to try different things and to be uncomfortable with these conversations, the reality is that it, it is in the short run and the long run be beneficial. So an example is um, sometimes we, get, we, we are really fearful about losing donors. So we don't introduce them to other nonprofits, right? There was one donor who who asked me if I knew like an, an organization that does education. And of course, immediately I, I kicked into this sort of training that I've had, which is if, if I might lose this donor if I introduce them to another nonprofit, right? Because in the short term, I'll lose this donor. Um, but I thought, you know, I don't want, I don't want to, I don't want to think like this. Um, so I introduced them to this other nonprofit. And what happens is that they donated to this nonprofit and to my nonprofit. And the other ED was so happy about that, that she started thinking about introducing me to her existing donors. So I feel like many of us have a lot of fear that are valid, but they may not be as realistic as, as we think. And maybe we just, we need to just take the leap sometimes and, and be, and be okay, uh, with, with it. I th- I, it also comes from, it also is the root of it is a fundraising from a place of scarcity, that there's That's only right. so much to go around. Um, and that if I don't get it all, then I won't get it all, right? Uh, right. It, it's going to go somewhere else. And I, I just, I, I, the more somebody cares about, the issue, the sector, the, you know, the root cause of the injustice. The, I mean, we, the, the, my goodness, anyone who's ever read one of these books about how to engage people in your work, you bring them close and you bring them and you inform them, you ask them their opinion, you bring them closer, right? The more people feel invested, not just whether or not they're getting some kind of damn return. Yes, we served 50, we got 50 more ducks fed this year because of you. Well, thank you note. <laughs> right. As opposed to like the pond's really changing and right. And the, I mean, whatever it may be, I think I might actually just beat this duck metaphor right into the ground here, but <laughs> you, you, you get the idea. I, I, um, someone else asked a question about, um, <laughs> um, it, uh, I, the question is different. The way I read the question was, are you telling me I shouldn't write thank you notes anymore? <laughs> and, and if I'm writing them, like how, how is a thank you note different in this new land? <laughs> Michelle, you want to tackle this? Yeah, go, Michelle. You love thank you well, notes. I love, <laughs> I love thank you notes too. Right. I love them too. Well, I think Vu and I have slightly different ways of approaching this. For me, so my family's Iranian and we have a culture of hospitality where there's a lot of graciousness and gratitude and hosting. So 
I, you know, I wonder what if we created thank you events that build community with one another when we can meet face to face again? You know, I know I've, I've easily thrown events where people have met each other and started dating or they've realized that they live in the same neighborhood and could do a nanny share because they both need childcare help, help, or they, they meet their neighbors, they create community. I think handwritten notes are lovely when we have the capacity to do them. So I'm still a believer in that, but they don't have to be the default. I think, you know, culturally we should be thanking people for their contributions. One of the principles is valuing time as equally as money and other contributions equally too. So we should be creating opportunities for more engagement, which is similar to your previous question of, um, you know, how do we, how do we deal with our donors in this transition space? Well, I think we actually engage them more and I, you know, and we create opportunities to do that. Um, and we do that for everybody, not just the person who's writing the big check. Yeah, I would agree. I love thank you notes. I like writing them. And, but I think that they are in many ways something that we developed from a very white perspective because many cultures don't thank with notes, as Michelle mentioned. In Vietnamese culture, we thank with food. And, and I so, think that's so you in some ways donors, better. You send your donors hummus? Is that, is that right? <laughs> well, <laughs> hummus, yes. Um, but I think that we just, we had to kind of shift away from this like this sort of default white centric model of how we approach things. And I think in some ways it, it's also more complicated, right? Which is sure we can, we can write people handwritten thank you notes, but should we, should we be training to expect that or expect that within two weeks? Uh, I mean, uh, I know some funders, some donors get angry when they don't get a thank you note within two or three weeks, even though they already got an automatic acknowledgement email, right? But so, and we've been training, we've been conditioned donors to think this way. Um, but I've worked with so many organizations led by communities of color who don't have a development director, whose ED is out there literally lifting bags of potatoes for the uh, senior hot meal program. She does not have time to write handwritten thank you notes. Maybe she might, but it might be like a month from now, mm-hmm. right? But we, what would you rather have her do? Spend all this time writing you a handwritten thank you note or spending time helping the elders because she's understaffed and she needs to be out there with her staff. So this is what I mean. It's not that we shouldn't be thanking people, but we should think about really getting donors to understand the context of the work that, that's being done and so to like decentralize it away from them. Yeah. Right? That's sure. not to say that they should never be thanked, but it's just like thanking them should not be the most important thing in this work. Yeah. Um, I'm going to toss one more question out at you before we go here. Um, one of our members asked, how do... How do um, how do we move donors to um, to a place where they're donating from a place of empathy rather than sympathy, right? Because so that, I think it's an interesting question because of the the whole savior thing you were talking about earlier. Sort of how do we how do we help them make that make that shift? Michelle, you want to grab onto that one real quick? Yeah, I mean, I think Vu actually has a great example about the curb cut effect that he can talk about. I would say. For me, I'm, I'm on the board of the Sexual Violence Law Center. Mm-hmm. And I've, you know, I've, I've read or I've seen the Brene Brown video about empathy versus sympathy. I get that there's a difference. And I'm still really struggling because when I sit on a board like that, I don't know that there's a way that we could, that I, I'm not sure how much I care, honestly. And I don't know how much of a difference there really is for the clients that we're serving at that organization. Um, we still need to bring some of the stories to life. Um, and also, you know, and, and that's for me personally, as a survivor, when I hear, when I hear the story of someone else going through something horrible, I don't really want to hear all the details of the horrible thing that happened, right. but I do want to know conceptually what is happening as that inspires me to either raise more money or give money. So empathy versus sympathy. I've been struggling with it in that context hmm. and I'm still struggling with it. But Vu has a great example. Yeah. Michelle and I were talking about this earlier, which, and I think in many ways, sympathy and empathy are overrated. <laughs> we need to kind of focus on, because they still center the donors and their feelings. How do we get them? How do we tug at their heartstring, et cetera? But what we need to do is move them towards like the sense of justice, right? So it doesn't matter whether they're empathetic or not. If someone is being killed because they're black, 
I don't care if you can't empathize or sympathize. You still need to be supporting, you know, like, uh, like ending police violence against black people. It doesn't matter if you can sympathize or empathize with it at all. The curb cut effect is something I really appreciate. Um, it's something that, that was coined by Angela Glover Blackwell from Policy Link. And it came out of this, uh, the activism in Berkeley in the, in the 70s when people in, using wheelchairs fought to get all these curbs cut so their wheelchairs can move on and off the curbs. And of course, a lot of people were opposed to that. They're like, why should we help some people, a few people in wheelchairs when most of us are not affected by this at all? Why should we spend so much money on this? But of course, they fought and they won and all the curbs had to be cut. But what they discovered was that not everyone benefits. The elderly, you know, movers, parents with strollers, skateboarders, vegans who have no energy, <laughs> you know, like there's just, so everyone benefits when we help the people who are most affected by systemic injustice. And we have to all believe that. So I think that this argument of like, can you empathize with someone in a wheelchair? Can you sympathize with them? It doesn't matter because this is the right thing to do. And we have to train donors to think about what is intrinsically right for our society because everyone benefits when we focus on the people most affected by injustice. Well, I, I actually think that's, uh, I, I think we should just leave it right there. Um, <laughs> uh, communitycentricfundraising.org goes live when? July 13th. July 13th. July 13th. So I hope that you will um, uh, go and be a part of it, connect, um, contribute, um, July 29th is the launch date for the Ethical Rainmaker. And um, the, the movement is uh, alive and well and off to the races in a really, um, in, a, in, a, in a structured way that, um, and I hope for, for, for you both and for the sector that a year from now, um, we can have a conversation and you can talk about how proud you are of what you've gotten off the ground and that you can really speak to the kind of momentum that's been created as a result of your efforts. So um, on behalf of all of us, just thank you for um, stirring up the pot and, uh, uh, and, and pushing us all to think differently. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you, John. Yeah, it's an honor. All right. Well, thank you. That's it for today. Um, as always, thank you so much for the work that you do. And we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope you found the conversation to be valuable. If you enjoyed the podcast, remember to subscribe to it. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave us a review. Turns out that reviews really matter. They help people discover the podcast. And if there's anything in this episode or any episode that really struck you as an aha moment, we'd love to know. Shoot us an email at podcast at joangary.com. And if you'd like to learn more about nonprofit leadership, head on over to my website at joangary.com. That's J-O-A-N-G-A-R-R-Y.com. It's full of advice and resources that you can put into action right away. And make sure to enter your email address so I can send you a surprise I think you'll find helpful. And if I haven't said it lately, thank you. Thank you so much for the important work you do every day to make this world a better place. I'll see you next time.